Thank you, Pastor Gary. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me again to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4. We live in a loud world. In fact, I think it's louder than it probably has been any other time in history. Although I suppose in my short life, I'm not necessarily an expert to be able to address that. Uh, But to go, you know, there's something always vying for your attention today. Uh, There are dings, beeps, buzzes, voices, just always noise, um, external, and as a result of all of those external noises, also internal noise, just going on all the time. Um, There are any number of people and things out there that are trying to capture your attention, to enlarge your appetite. And I think even in light of what we see today, we could say seeking to create addiction, to kind of tie you in. Let Let me grab your attention, let me explain to you why you need this, and then let me try to get you hooked on it and to create more and more and more and more. I mean, we live in a world of infinite scrolling, suggested content. In fact, one that's been on my mind lately is engineered food. Uh, to go, you know what, even what you put in your mouth, like we can color it this way and we can add this in to make it taste this way so that you can't just take one. You have to have more. Like if if we just add a little more sugar in there and a little more sugar in there, and I mean, it's like in everything, is it not? And again, you can go through any any number of life activities and realize there are people out there whose job it is to get you hooked. I was just writing down verbs earlier to go, you know, in the world of gaming. Spend more, get that reward, accomplish that next thing. Like, there is no end. Just, Just keep achieving, keep going. Or eating. Or surfing or watching, or listening, or sadly lusting, uh, even shopping, right? I mean, we were having this conversation. I didn't think of it till I was already here, but we were having a conversation on the way to church about how shopping works today. And, you know, people tell you, like, so many people have viewed this item in the last 24 hours. Why do you need to know that? Oh, you're looking at something that people like. It's popular, okay? It's got a little fire symbol next to it. So many people have this in their cart, okay? And guess what? When you go to your cart, because you put it in there, and you're thinking about it, and they're like, you have 15 minutes left, and we'll guarantee that you'll get this deal. And between popularity and urgency, they are striving to do everything they can to trap you and make the sale, particularly at this time of year. Like, here's another email, here's another text, here's another ad, here's another deal, and we are constantly being bombarded with your need for more. And again, it can go any number. It can be more stuff, it can be more food, it can be more to watch, Uh, we are just constantly being told, you need this. Let's create this appetite. Let's capture your attention. Let's feed this addiction. And so we live in a world that is having conversations about problems with obesity and debt and sensuality and anxiety and addiction as a result. 
in all kinds of areas, right? You know, we could walk through that and say, well, the problem is there's this over-self-indulgence, and that's true. We struggle with overindulging ourselves. We go, you know what the answer is? It's self-restraint. And there's a side of that that's side of that that's true. We should seek to discipline ourselves, to restrain ourselves, to work at that. And yet, you know what? If it's self-restraint alone, we fail. We're going to give in to the noise. I think what we'll see, hopefully, as we go to Scripture today, is a reminder that actually our need is to fight that self-indulgence, to fight sinfulness, not just by self-restraint, but by the Spirit's control and by the Word of God. You know, we're in the temptation of Christ. And I would just remind you that when we look at these three temptations here, we're going to look at numbers two and three today. We looked at one a couple weeks ago. That these are really the culmination, both Mark and Luke tell us, of 40 days of temptation as Jesus is fasting. I mean, going through 40 days of time where he hasn't eaten, the scripture so obviously says, he's hungry, right? If we use the King James word, he's unhungered. Like, he's hungry. And now, here comes more temptation to him. Come on, just give in. Just a little bit. Just, just circumvent what God has for you, and this will bring you pleasure, right? I saw a little quote this week that reminded us when it comes to temptation, temptation is never a duty, right? Temptation's never a duty. It's always a promise that if you give in, it'll bring you just a little more happiness. Life will be just a little bit better if you give in. It's not something we have to, but we begin to buy this lie. And as we look at the example of Christ here in Matthew chapter 4, God has put this in his word to help us in our spiritual growth. We're not sitting here as by, like sort of bystanders or observers going, well, you know what, that's how Jesus was tempted. I'm glad Jesus beat that. You know, that's really good. Good for him. Like it has implications for us to look and go, here's our Savior who became a man, who showed us what it's like to defeat temptation. And because he did, gives us hope that we can as well. It's been several weeks ago now. We looked at the situation of the temptation and made five observations. For sake of time, we're not going to review those. But I do want to remind you, beyond the situation of the temptation, what's the solution to all three temptations? It is written. It is written. It is written. Every time Jesus confronts this lie that Satan is putting in front of him, this temptation that Satan is putting in front of him, with biblical truth, with Scripture. And the challenge, again, is implicit to us to go, when it comes to our battles with sin, when it comes to our battles with temptation, what Scripture do we go to? Some of you may be joining us for the first time and looking at Matthew chapter 4. Others of you have been here for the other messages. But again, I would put that thought in your mind to write down what temptations you face, whether you know it's lying or unkindness or sexual sin or stealing or a lack of integrity. We could just keep listing sin after sin after sin. And go, so what scripture addresses that issue? Have you memorized it? To go, I want the Spirit of God to have the Word of God in my mind 
to combat temptation. It would be a shame for us to walk away from these messages going, you know, that's true, I need, I need to, I, I, I should, I, I know, and not do anything. It's the James 1, look in the mirror, walk away and do nothing. So the solution comes back to Scripture. Last time we were together in this text, we started in the substance of the temptations then. Temptation number one was this. It's the temptation to self-gratification. Satisfy yourself independently. Jesus has fasted 40 days, and what is the devil's first temptation here? Hey, these rocks over here, if you're really the Son of God, and we know that you are, I mean, he was just declared to be so at the baptism, command that these stones be made bread. Feed yourself. Man, isn't that appealing? And Jesus answers and says, but it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. You see, life works best when we obey God's word, not when we seek to satisfy ourselves apart from God's word. It works best when we do things God's way. In essence, Jesus' answer, as we saw, was grounded both in the revelation of God, it is written, and also in the provision of God, because here's what God has said. You know, the way God works in our lives, he works in such a way that he meets our needs. We don't have to go seeking to meet our needs apart from him. Our, our needs for relationship, our needs for clothing, our needs for food. I mean, Jesus is going to continue that same theme in Matthew chapter 6, to go quit worrying about all of these things. Don't take any thought about these things. Seek first the kingdom of God. All these things will be added unto you. We do have a good God who does delight in providing for us exactly what we need in His way. We just need to obey His Word. He satisfies. So we come back to the text in verses 5 and 6 today. Let's look at the second temptation. The first one was that temptation to self-gratification, satisfy yourself independently. The second one is the temptation to selfish validation, test God presumptuously. Test God presumptuously. We see Satan's attack here again in verses 5 and 6. And as we begin there in verse 5, notice with me first the area of the temptation. It says there, The devil taketh him up into the holy city, setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple. We're given some geographical details just to let us know the place has changed. The area of this temptation has changed. It would have, I mean, Satan can tempt and tempt and tempt and tempt and tempt anywhere repeatedly. We've experienced that in our own battle with sin, okay? We don't have to leave the house to be tempted differently. And yet here, Satan leads Jesus to a different place. Previously, they've been in the wilderness. Jesus has been fasting. It appears that they're all alone. And now we go to a different location, a place where multitudes are present. It's no longer the isolation of the desert. They've gone to Jerusalem. In fact, they're not just in the city of Jerusalem. They're in a place of spiritual significance, right? They're at the temple. And they're not just in Jerusalem at the temple, but the text clearly tells us they're at the highest point of the temple. The word pinnacle in the original languages is preceded by the definite article. It's the idea of the pinnacle. It's not like, oh, they're just someplace there. It is the idea they are at the highest point on the temple. So if we're tracking with this again, they're in a public place, a high place, a spiritual place, 
we might call it a prominent place. And I think that plays into the devil's temptation here. Because if Jesus gives in, think about how many people will watch what takes place. Think about the validation that can occur beyond the area of the temptation. Secondly, let's look at the appeal of this temptation. The appeal of this temptation. First, it's based on Jesus' position as the Son. The other one was as well. It's stated here in the text a second time in verse 6. The devil saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, we talked about it before, but the grammatical structure of this clause uh, is such that the assumption is made that he really is the Son. And again, that makes sense because in verse end of, ch- verse, end of chapter 3, we were told God's declaration. It was heard there publicly, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. But again, this situation is different. They're not in the wilderness. They're not out there uh, with this really strange guy, John, as he's baptizing people. They're in Jerusalem. They're at the temple. This is an amazing opportunity. You can show everybody that you are the Son of God, that the Christ has come, that the Messiah is here. What a demonstration if you jump and the angels catch you. See, Satan's appeal is based on Jesus' position as a son. He could validate his sonship publicly, and yet the timing isn't right. I mean, we watch, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, this sense of mystery. that people don't know who he is, they, they don't get it. And like, he'll heal someone, and they'll get it. You're the Christ! And he's like, don't tell anybody. Shh! Because it's not yet the time for it to be revealed. Right? We even find him asking the apostles, who do people say that I am in Mark chapter 8? And well, some think you're Elijah, and some think you're John. Like, they're still guessing. And here, Satan is presenting Jesus with a temptation to say, if you're the son, you can show everybody. You can validate yourself. You, you can be proven as right. Beyond the appeal of this temptation with Jesus' position as the Son, secondly, notice it is connected to the promises of Scripture. Don't run past this too quickly, because Satan is now doing to Jesus what Jesus did to Satan. This is scary stuff. Because Satan is taking the truth of God's word, and as he is prone to do, he is twisting it. He's using it as an opportunity to say, take what God has said and serve yourself following me. Satan says, it is written. The Bible says, he shall give his angels charge against uh, concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against the stone." Satan's approach here is so different than the last one. You know, Jesus had confronted that last temptation just to gratify himself with Scripture, and now Satan's like, well, this isn't about gratifying yourself. Let me give you some Scripture. You remember that God said he would protect you. He would protect his own people with angels. This is a wonderful reminder for us. Maybe wonderful is not the right word. Maybe needful reminder for us that Satan is an angel of light. He is a deceiver. He is the father of all lies. 
And he takes the truth from God's word, particularly here, Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, noting God's care for his own, and seeks to tempt Jesus to validate his position as the son underneath the promises of Scripture. Is God's word true? Absolutely. But Satan's appeal is wrong on at least two levels. On the one hand, if Jesus were to give in, he's submitting to Satan's instruction. He's submitting to the authority of the devil, which is wrong. It's sin, certainly for us as well. The text in Ephesians 2 has been in my mind that reminds us uh, that Satan is that prince of the power of the air among whom we all had our conversation or former lust or ignorance. We were children of disobedience. We were children of wrath. We were under his influence, under his authority and power. Jesus cannot do that. He's God's son. But the appeal is secondly also wrong in that doing so is a temptation for Jesus to seek validation apart from God's will. Jesus can go, you know what? Let me show everybody. Let me validate myself instead of remaining submitted to the Father's will. Satan's temptations are an attempt to malign God's character and usurp his authority. In essence, to say validation or satisfaction, first temptation, second temptation, can be found apart from him. Or maybe he doesn't really care. I mean, if you, don't, if you don't do this, how do you know that he really cares? You don't. So maybe you should put him to the test and see if he actually does care for you. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he won't protect you. Is he really good? Is he really in control? And Nathan, Satan is trying to get Jesus to circumvent God's plan. See if God will show his care to you now. By the way, notice the temptation involves the angels ministering to Jesus. God will send his angels to bear thee up, lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. The angels will rescue you. They will protect you. They're those ministering spirits sent by God. I find that just fascinating in light of the text because Jesus rightly will rebuke Satan, stay away from the temptation, right? When do the angels show up? Verse 11, have you ever stopped to think about that before, that God didn't have to have the angels come minister to Jesus, but in the text, he actually does. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. He's been alone, okay? And he goes through these temptations. He comes out of all three. Satan has said, well, maybe the angels will come and they'll minister to you because Psalm 91 says, and you get through the end of these and here's the angels. And what are they doing? They're ministering to Jesus. They're meeting Jesus' needs after the fact. You ever been there in temptation? You were like, I just can't fight this anymore. I'm too weak. I I feel like life just is not good. I just have to give in. I can't stand anymore. I've tried to follow God, but it just seems like I can't. And sometimes you give in and you fail. And you feel miserable as a result. We feel miserable as a result. Have you ever been on the other side of that where you're like, I don't think I can. There's no way. God, please, please. And you see victory over sin. And then God provides encouragement, provides joy, provides strength and refreshment because you've stayed true to his word in the battle. 
informative to us to see when the angels show up. Beyond Satan's attack, let's consider secondly again Jesus' answer, verse 7. Jesus said unto him, it is written again. I like that little word again this time, because like, here we go again, right? Jesus is going to go to the same source to argue and contend with this temptation once more. He says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but all of the quotations that Jesus goes to here are from Deuteronomy 6 to 8. So they're dealing with that time when uh, in Deuteronomy, Israel has come through 40 years of wilderness wanderings. They're now on the east side of the Jordan River. They're getting ready to finally go into the promised land. Like They're going to go see the conquest of this incredible land that their forefathers thought was impossible to get into. That's why they've wandered for 40 years. Can you imagine the excitement, the anticipation as they get ready to go into the promised land? And Moses gives three speeches in Deuteronomy to go, hey, remember how God worked. See his power and goodness on display. Now, here's the laws as you go into the land that you need to follow. And here's the blessings when you obey. Here's the cursings if you don't. That's the section, Deuteronomy 6 to 8, that Jesus quotes here in these temptations. This one in verse 7 is from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. It's a fascinating context. You know a lot of verses in Deuteronomy 6 as a whole. To go, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. The Lord our God is one. To go, remember, love this one. Talk about all of his laws. Tell your children when you get up, when you lay down, when you go out, when you come in, all the time, talk about your God as you love him. And then he proceeds to say, don't forget all his good blessings in your life. He's given you wonderful things that you did not earn. And beware, because you're going to be inclined to forget In Deuteronomy 6, he begins to warn them, don't have other gods because your God is a jealous God. He doesn't want any rivals in what you worship. He wants your exclusive attention and devotion. And it's in that context that Deuteronomy 6 verse 16 shows up where he says, Deuteronomy 6 16 you shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Massa. That last little bit is uh, omitted in Jesus' quotation in Matthew 4. But I think it's worthy of our consideration. Like, okay, Jesus just responded to Satan, quoted Deuteronomy 6.16, said, don't tempt the Lord your God. Remember, that's what the Scripture says. Well, in Deuteronomy 6, we're given a very vivid illustration as to what does it mean to tempt the Lord our God. And For sake of time, we're not going to go back and read uh, Exodus 17. That's the account of what happened at Massa. I would encourage you to go back and look at it yourself. Okay, Exodus 17, what happened at Massa? You remember leading up to Exodus 17? Like, remember chapter content there, those early chapters of Exodus? Like, what's going on there, Exodus 7 to 12? Remember? It's the ten plagues, right? Where God miraculously, powerfully, 
wonderfully delivers his people from Egypt, right? From the power of Pharaoh. They've been in bondage, slavery, and God uses the plagues to set his people free. They get out of Egypt, right, at that first Passover. They get out of Egypt, and as they're going, all of a sudden they encounter this immense body of water. They're in trouble. They're pihahi road. Like they're trapped on land with all this water in front of them. And what's behind them? You remember? It's the Egyptian army. Great. We're powerfully delivered from Egypt. And now we're trapped. The water's in front of us. The Egyptian army's behind us. What are they going to do? You remember what happened? God split the water. And they walked through on dry ground. Right? This is amazing stuff that we just like, oh, yeah, 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 I heard that in junior church when I was little. Okay, when they get to the other side going through on dry ground, then what happens? The Egyptian army starts across, right? And then what happens? The water goes back, and the Egyptian army is destroyed because God loves his people and is that powerful to deliver them. Plagues crossing of the Red Sea, and then they get out and they start complaining. We're hungry. The food was better in Egypt, okay? I don't know how it was for you, but when I was growing up, we complained about dinner. Like, guess you're not going to eat. You know what God did? He said, I'll give you bread from heaven. Right? He feeds them with manna. Like every day, I'll give you exactly what you need. Don't take more than you need. So think about this. Track with me. This is Exodus. Like this is worth tracking through because we do this. Plagues, powerfully delivered. Trapped by the Red Sea, amazingly delivered. Egyptian army enemies destroyed. Then they're whining about the food, thinking maybe Egypt was a better option. Maybe the bondage and slavery and brick making was actually a good thing. And God goes, let me feed you in the wilderness. I'll give you bread from heaven. They're just complaining. Like even he provides water for them from a rock, right? Well, Exodus 17 is the second time, actually uh, prior to that, I think it's Exodus 15, where the water's bitter and he makes it sweet for them. Exodus 17, they're thirsty again. Imagine that. They're taking a road trip and they're thirsty, Okay. And they're complaining. And in Exodus 17, they're like, you know what? It would have been better that we stayed in Egypt and we died there. It would have just been better. Why did we ever come out? Not thinking. You remember those plagues? You remember the Red Sea? You remember the Egyptian army? You saw what God did there? That whole bread from heaven thing? And like, you know what? Maybe we should go back because we're really thirsty right now. And they're told there that they have tempted the Lord their God. They keep putting him to the test. Rather than trusting him, they doubt him, they question him. Their appetites drive everything. God, I need more. God, I need more. God, I need more. And can I just remind us, we often in temptation do the same thing. We fail to see God's blessings. 
We don't stop and go, God, you have been so good. When I look back over life, I'm just amazed at your mercy towards my sinfulness, your patience and your long-suffering, your provisions and your blessings. God, you have been so good to me. Instead, it's like, well, God, I need you to do this for me. God, if you do this, then maybe I'll do this over here. And we start like this brokering, this deal making with God. God, I'm not sure if you really care, but God, I would know that you care if. God, do you really know what you're doing? God, I'm not sure if I can trust you with this right now. Because like everything just seems, all of a sudden we're like testing God. We don't need another sign. We don't need more blessings. God has been abundantly good to us. I wonder where it is in life for you that you're tempted to doubt God. Maybe the question is goodness, or his sovereign control, or his powerful ability to actually work in what's going on, or his faithfulness to you, or his word. Where if we were going to be maybe just more direct about it, it's just a desire for selfish validation. God, prove it to me. God, prove it to me. God, I need proof again. Like we can go to several other passages in the Gospels where Jesus has done many, 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 many miracles. And then people are like, maybe one more. Maybe one more. Like even you think about the man, the rich man that lifts his eyes up in hell in Luke 16. And it's like, well, maybe if Moses were to go back. Or maybe if you, I, you were to go back. Maybe if someone were to go to them. I just need one more proof. I just need one more validation. God, if you answer this prayer, then I'll do this. God, if you'll just work in my children's life, then I'll do this. God, if you could just make my marriage better. Instead of saying, God, I'm just going to trust you in the midst of life where it's at because you are worthy of my trust. You have been consistently good. You have been constantly merciful. The temptation here is one of selfish validation. Let God prove himself to you and to all these people. Test God presumptuously. See if he comes through. Because what if he doesn't? First temptation was temptation to self-gratification. Second, selfish validation. Third, final temptation is the temptation to self-actualization. The temptation to self-actualization. We could say it this way. Circumvent God's will autonomously. Circumvent God's will autonomously. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain. Won't spend long on this, but just notice again, there's a shift of venue. Let's go somewhere else with a different temptation. He showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, all these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. The final temptation here is direct. In fact, I think almost sometimes in his directness, we kind of grapple with like, whoa, you think he's going to do that? Right? I mean, like, but he says, look at all the kingdoms of the world. Do you see their glory? Do you see their value? Their splendor? Satan says, I'll give these all to you if you will worship them. In essence, this temptation is a shortcut to alleged kingship. 
It's a shortcut to alleged kingship. No suffering, no cross, no pain, no death. Just submit, and I'll give it to you. Remember, he is the prince of the power of the air that now worketh in the children of disobedience, Ephesians 2. Jesus knows what the future holds in his life on earth. You remember, he's going to tell the apostles repeatedly, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer at the hands of the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees. I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again the third day. He tells the apostles that repeatedly. He knows that suffering is going to happen, that he is going to die at the hands of the religious leaders. And now Satan comes along and says, look at all of it. You want it? It's yours. I'll give it to you. Just bow down and worship me. It's not a big deal. It's just a small trade. It's a shortcut to alleged kingship. And we read this, and at least for me, when I read this, I think, that's nuts. Who's going to fall for that? Like, But do you ever find Satan in heaven In any passage of Scripture, 66 books, do you ever find Satan in heaven with God in all of his glory, in all of his holiness, being tempted, like, hey, you know what, I'll trade you. All those people down on earth that are sinning, I'll give them all to you if you worship. Like, you never find that in Scripture. Because here's God in all of his glory. Like, it's ludicrous to even think about it. You're like, that's wrong. He he can't be there. He's banished. But what we're reminded of in that it comes up here is Jesus really did become a man. He really did take on flesh. Because we know Jesus is God, sometimes we read texts like this and we read it through the deity-only lens. Instead of going, he's a man. As Scripture tells us, he was tempted in all points like as we are. Yet, without sin. This temptation has appeal, has pull, and yet praise God that Jesus will not give in. Now, can I remind us that all the time in life, you and I are facing temptations to self-actualization, to circumvent God's will by taking control of your life to find meaning, satisfaction, happiness, somewhere else than the will of God. You know that deal that's coming up at work? If if you just hedge the details a little bit and you don't tell the truth, it'll come through. And you know how much money you will make? You know how life will be good if you'll just be a little bit dishonest with that? Ah, man, it'll be awesome for you. You know what? If you just go ahead and give them a piece of your mind, because what they said was absolutely wrong, and so they have no right, so you you are completely justified to unload on them with a verbal torrent of anger. It'll make you feel better. It'll be good. You know, instead of working hard at that relationship, you can just go online. Or instead of watching, uh, instead of waiting for what God has for you, You can go satisfy yourself. See, we are constantly bombarded. That whole line earlier, right? Grab attention, 
feed appetite, create addiction. You go please yourself. You go entertain yourself. You just are in control of your own pleasure, your own happiness. Circumvent God's will autonomously. Jesus here again gives us the answer. What does he say, verse 10? Get thee hence, Satan. By the way, can I just remind us, he could have stopped right there. Right? Like, if Jesus tells Satan to leave, what happens? Satan leaves. Like, that could have happened in temptation one. That could have happened on day one of the 40 days of fasting and being tempted. He could have been like, leave. And it would have happened. Jesus has that kind of power and control. And yet, I believe the reason Jesus goes through these is to help us learn how we fight temptation. Here again, he continues and says, For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. Him only shalt thou serve. What verse is that? Where did that come from? Deuteronomy 6. We were just in Deuteronomy 6, 16. This is Deuteronomy 6, 13. So same context. Remember all that? Like, hey, we're coming out of the Exodus, plagues, Red Sea, even the Massa thing, water coming from the rock thing. And after that, like, okay, they heard from God, received the Mosaic Covenant thing. Yeah, we'll agree. We'll do that, man. This is awesome. 40 years of wandering. Whole generation dies off. Okay? Now they're getting ready to go in. They're reminded of this. When you go in, love God with everything. Love God with everything. And understand this, worship Him alone. Serve Him alone. God is good. He has provided for you. He deserves to be loved by us. He deserves to be worshipped by us. But as one man said of yesteryear, our hearts are idol factories. We're really good at worshiping all kinds of worthless things and assigning them value, right? You ever had someone go through your house and be like, why do you hang on to this stuff? You go, oh, you keep that. Like that's just the memories with that. Like some of us hang on to stuff and some of us are like, get out of there, Okay. There are all kinds of things people hang on to, like, oh, but this is really special. When I was in third grade, forget the fact that you're 64, but you got it, and your garage is full, and your attic's overflowing, it's like, but it's got assigned value to it. I don't know what it is, but in life, we all go through life, much more so than possessions, going, oh, I value that. Oh, that would make me happy. If I just had a little more of that, then I'd be okay. See, we assign value to lots of lesser worthless things. And Deuteronomy's admonition, repeated by Jesus here, is you know what you value? You know what you worship? You know what you live for? God. Serve Him only. Don't serve another person exclusively. Don't serve money. Don't serve material possessions. Don't serve your own appetite for food or for sensual living. Don't serve your own desire just simply for entertainment. Serve God. Value Him. 
Worship him. Find your satisfaction in him. You know, he wonderfully gives us all kinds of good blessings. We've talked about this often. What happens, though, when we receive these good gifts from God? We begin to love the gift more than the giver. We begin to find more meaning in the gift itself than the one who gave it, right? We, we think about it. You approach Christmas season when gifts are given, and we look at it as immature mindset when someone doesn't even stop to say thank you. They're just so concerned. Like, oh, I can't believe I got this. I wanted this so bad, and they're hanging it all. This is going to Instead of turning going, you know what? Thank you. I, I can set that aside and just thank the one who gave it. We do this with God all the time. God has made wonderful food. God has made wonderful things. God has entrusted us with so much. God has given us incredibly good relationships. And instead of those things like, well, I just want this to make me happy. I just want this to make me happy. I just want this to make me happy. I just need something more. I just need something better. Instead of saying, you know what I'm here for? I'm here to worship God, to serve him, to trust him. Temptation ends. The devil leaves. The angels come and they minister to Jesus. Again, for us, I wonder what temptation you're battling. Maybe it's a temptation for self-gratification. Satisfy yourself independently. It's no biggie. It'll make you happy for a little while. Or the temptation to self-validation. Test God presumptuous. Get God to prove himself. Are you sure God's really going to follow through? You sure he cares? You sure he knows? You sure he's there? God owes it to you. Temptation to self-actualization. Circumvent God's will. Autonomy. So you're in control of life. You can bring yourself some happiness. I said these to you at the very beginning. I want to just come back to them one more time. When we watch what Jesus does here in the temptation, I think there are two responses we ought to walk away with, two categories of response. One, rejoice in Jesus' sinless action. You walk through this and you realize Jesus didn't sin. He never sinned. Never sinned. That's a big deal. Why? Because it enabled him to be your savior. It gives you hope that through his victory, you can have victory as well. Because he defeated sin. Because he defeated sin's consequence of death. Because he overcame the grave. That same power now works in you and me if you know Jesus Christ as Savior. You can rejoice in Jesus' sinless actions because he was your substitute and now he enables your victory. Secondly, not only do we rejoice in Jesus' sinless actions, we replicate Jesus' scriptural approach. Jesus is tempted, it is written. It is written. It is written. And for us, it would be good for us to get in the habit as we battle temptation, be going, that verse right there, I've been memorizing that one. I've been memorizing that one because I need that one. Because whether it's honesty or anger or unkindness or sensuality or stealing, whatever it is, like we, there's plenty of sin list in the Bible. To go, man, that right there. Replicate Jesus' scriptural approach. You know, as you're here this morning, maybe you're like, man, I just feel like a failure. Send, beating me up. Jesus 
I mean, clearly, he doesn't sin, but for me, life's just been a mess. Can I just remind you, your God is a forgiving God? Like, he did allow water to come at Massa, even though the people were doubting him and tempting him again. Again. And he's like, nope, okay. I, and he allows the water. Even though Moses did it the wrong way, he still allowed water to come. Like, the people were bad, the leader was bad, and God was kind. That's awesome. You can turn to God today and go, you know what, God, I'm, I'm here again. I was here this morning already a couple times, but I'm here again. And God forgives. Turn back to him. Confess your sin. Ask for his help moving forward. Let's pray. Fathers, we've had opportunity to consider this text now across multiple weeks. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts and lives to change us, to give us victory in a battle against temptation, against sin, that you would be glorified in us that we would taste the victory that you've given through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for your forgiveness to us. We thank you that you are long-suffering and merciful. Lord, I pray that all of those realities would cause us to love you, to strive to obey you, to be quick to confess sin to you when needed. Lord, we love you. Thank you for first loving us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.